you superb Senjis out there. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts, Casey, and I'm joined by the superb Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Alliteration for you, too. Yay. (laughs) Um, I'm already anxious now, though. Do you say Senji? I don't know. I said Sengi in my head. You know what? I'm going to do some light Googling while we continue just to see if we can get Google's answer on that. <laughs> uh, I, I saw at least one video where somebody said Zangi, but I don't actually know if they knew what they were talking about either. So anyway, more to come on that, folks. Uh, yes. Thanks for joining us this week, Casey. It's lovely to see you. How are you today? I am doing pretty well. I took like an unintentional two and a half hour nap, so I'm jazzed. I won't sleep till 2 a.m., but you know what? Right now, we're good to go for this podcast. I'm all about the two-hour naps. I don't understand people who take those 15-minute power naps. That does not work. Does not work at all for me. But I can take a two-hour nap and then go to bed and have no problem falling asleep. Good for you. I have environmental nature-y things that I wanted to share. Please. One, there's a plant sale coming up for me this weekend, and I can actually go to it. That's exciting. I have weekends off now, which is moving on up. Strange and unusual to me, but and there's a booth that has native plants. So perhaps more to come. I'm I'm undecided if I'm actually going to go yet, but I'm excited that that season is upon us and excited to potentially add some more natives to my lawn. Heck yeah. I mentioned this last week and I said that it was starting next week, but really because of the timing of recording and episode release, it hasn't happened yet. But my first webinar, God, Country, and Climate Change yeah it just makes me laugh but it's coming up tomorrow for me so it'll already happened at the time that y'all are listening to this but I'm really excited about that and I'm excited about the speakers that are going to be in this first webinar and then I've also been participating in a carbon fast for Lent and this is I saw it through an organization called Arasha that I follow uh, but I think it's put on by Climate Stewards USA and so the first week and a little extra that we did was fasting from consumerism to not buy anything extra beyond what you need and that worked out real well for me because I'm on a strict budget right now (laughs) anyway and then we've just started now this is uh, giving up meat for the week, or if you're already a vegetarian, you can give up dairy, or if you're already a vegan, you can give up dessert. It was kind of their yeah. suggestion. So I am going vegetarian for the week. There's a lot of frozen, spicy black bean burgers and pasta in my future this week. I'm not super creative with the vegetarian dishes yet, but uh, but still, I'm excited about it. So if anybody listening out there wants to join in, you can check that out. I think that's so cool that you're basically wrapping your climate commitments into both a religious aspect for you, but also you've figured out like a community element to the religious aspect. My Lent commitment was to reduce my road rage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could also use that. (laughs) But I have no support group to lead me through that. We can start one. (laughs) Some heavy breathing. Yes. (laughs) Well, what good updates? Our homework last week was to 
keep looking out for stories about the Ohio train derailment. So a positive one, the EPA is testing for dioxins, which is one of those byproduct chemicals that scientists, activists, academics were encouraging them to test for. That is on their radar. That is something that will be able to be monitored. Bad news is there was another train derailment. (laughs) I almost couldn't believe it. I know. And uh, I mean, like we talked about it. There is like a thousand train derailments a year or something like that. So it is actually not uncommon that there is a train derailment. And the second one did not have hazardous materials on it. It probably only made the news because the other one. one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a struggle. And even apparently, I mean, my dad was talking about because he's involved in local politics around here, how they interact with Norfolk Southern as a company too. And so it was interesting to hear like, oh, actually, like this is something that communities do deal with. If it's not the derailment, it is just interacting with railroad companies and these large transportation things coming through. So I'm sure more news is going to keep coming out. But those are the two big updates. At least we know that there's going to be more information about dioxins out there. And at least the second derailment that was notable didn't have the same sort of environmental effects. It ended up being empty of diesel fuel, I think, yeah. which is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those are those are my updates. I did my homework. I kept my eye out. Well done. Look at us. (laughs) So much, so much to talk about today. All right, Casey, my question for you before we jump in to our topic of the day. I know we've chatted about this before, but remind me, did you ever have growing up any small mammals as pets? Of any kind. Nothing smaller than a Jack Russell. Okay. <laughs> I really wanted a gerbil when I was a kid. Like hamsters, I think, are aesthetically more pleasing, but gerbils, after doing research, ha- are actually like seem to be better pets from what uh five or fifth grade year old me got out of the library from like one of those books from the 70s about pet care. Mm-hmm. But my dad's afraid of rats, and he said that was too close to rats mm. for him. So I never got my gerbil. So no, I had friends who had guinea pigs. Um, yeah, that's no, no small mammals. We had gerbils. You had gerbils? Yeah. Okay. Tell me, was my dream correct? Or were you like, your parents got you? Uh, no, one? they, we really liked them. They were my brothers though. Okay. But I would go and play with them. They were, they're very cute. We had two of them and then they had babies. Oh, Whoa. <laughs> Oops. Not yet. Not <laughs> intentional on our part. So then I think we kept them until they were old enough and then they went off to live Adopted somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but they, they were cute. I feel like those types of animals, your gerbils, your hamsters, your guinea pigs. I did also have rabbits. I guess I need to define for myself how small we're going, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, I just, I feel like there is something just really attractive about these little pets. And it is funny because we do think about rats and mice sometimes in negative connotations, but I feel like those small sort of quote unquote pocket pets are really appealing to some people. And that's part of the reason that we're going to talk about the animal that we are talking about tonight. We're going to talk about a small, cute animal called the elephant shrew. And I'm excited about this animal because I feel like you and I are familiar. We've at least heard of this animal. I don't know how deep your knowledge base is on the elephant shrew, but I feel like this might be an animal that 
not a lot of people are familiar with. And some people might be surprised to learn what an elephant true actually is. So if you stick around, you're going to get to learn about a super cute animal with kind of an interesting backstory. So hang on for our discussion on elephant truths. Welcome to today's discussion on the elephant true. This might be the most random episode I feel like that we've done so far. I mean, probably <laughs> not that like me pulling sloths or red panda is come. I mean, they are just random choices. People just know more about them. I guess. So. I, yeah, we've done we've done a few animals, but I feel like those sloths and red pandas are sort of popular yeah animals right now that's not why I picked them but yeah <laughs> sure. but, and we've also been around them and had to talk about them before so there's something that's in sort of our wheelhouse a little more we've had people request specific animals that we've done episodes on we've done animals associated with like we did bats around Halloween mm-hmm. maybe you know things things like that we've done some sort of themed animal episodes this episode really just came about because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I happened to see a post on Facebook about two baby elephant shrews that were born at the Vienna Zoo and they were so darn cute and I also really just needed I needed something positive to focus on we'd done some some bigger episodes we talked about the train derailment we've been talking about some climate change related episodes and I think the the struggle that we face sometimes with this podcast being a weekly podcast is every week we're we're talking about things that might be challenging and things that are are not ideal and maybe things that we need to change or learn about you know all of those types of things and they're all really good things and I hope that for you all listening, they're, it's not overwhelming as you listen to them. But every once in a while, I just get a little overwhelmed. <laughs> and you need I'm a like, cleanser. Yeah, exactly. Like we've just been, we've been talking about a lot of things and I feel like there's a lot of things that I need to work on and a lot of things that I could be doing. So I just, I just needed a nice little cute animal episode. Baby elephant shrews popped up. So here we are. And then today, I also just happened to learn that somebody has somewhere has decided that this is National Aardvark Week. Excellent. And for those of you listening at this moment, maybe like, well, that has nothing to do with anything, but it actually does, which we'll talk about. So now I feel a little more justified in picking the elephant true. Topical. Right, totally. <laughs> All right, Casey. So, like we said, this this is a species that maybe not everybody is familiar with. I'm going to ask you to describe elephant shrews for us, and I do have a video here that I will also share with you all listening on our Facebook page. But Casey, before you answer the question, before you describe elephant shrews, I need you to to watch this video. There's also a couple of pictures there for you. Okay. The video is the elephant shrews from the Vienna Zoo. Oh my gosh. Your face is exactly what I wanted it to be. Tell me that's not the cutest thing you've ever seen in your life. Uh, oh, there's a tortoise that lives I with know. them. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that part. Oh, 
All right. So you've seen a video. There's a couple of photos there for your reference. I know that you've seen Elephant Shrews before. So how would you describe Elephant Shrews to the people? Gosh, in general. Um, so let's just start with a rat just because that's like the closest body mm-hmm. plan that you have. Now make its legs a little bit more upright. Like it's always walking on its tippy toes and it's still got its rat tail. There's a couple of different species. They're a little bit different from each other. But if you take instead of like that kind of rats have a long nose, but it's sort of bulbous mm-hmm. instead, if you elongate it, so it almost looks like a little elephant trunk, like a tapir, if you're familiar with that, um, with little ears and these baby elephant shrews, their heads are half their body and they're so cute. Gosh, they're so cute. <laughs> the article that that video is attached to, it says at, at some point that they're about the size of ping pong balls. So they're just the little fluffiest oh. ping pong balls with big eyes and little round ears that you ever did see. So how could I not do an episode after watching that video? Uh, but yeah, that's a really good description, Casey. They are small mammals. They have that sort of rat tail. They have fairly long limbs, longer in, in the back than in the front. And then they are there are various sizes there's i believe 20 species is the most accurate right now but some will say 19 as well but somewhere in that ballpark 19 or 20 species and there's a group called the soft furred elephant trues those are the smaller ones like the ones at the vienna zoo that you're looking at was getting several species that fall in that soft furred shrew group and then there are giant elephant trues basically is the other side of that group and giant is relative so the larger shrews that are in that group maximum is going to be about one and a half pounds for the largest species so in my mind they give off kind of a mix between rodent rabbit and even little tiny kangaroo just based on those back legs yes yeah so like the ones in the video you just have were i think rounded eared elephant shrews and they have like very gerbil Mm -hmm. body plan i have more interaction with the giant elephant shrews and because they're bigger i feel like you can see those legs a little bit and like you said it almost looks like they could hop but you typically see them kind of just like run like like i said on their tiptoes yeah (laughs) And when they do go fast, they have locomotion sort of similar yeah. to a rabbit, I would say. Yeah. And then, of course, like you mentioned, they have the the long nose, kind of like an elephant's trunk. And that is why they are called elephant trues, is because of the similarity between that long nose and an elephant's trunk. An important thing to clear up about these animals though right from the beginning which is where I I said in our intro that people may be surprised to learn what they actually are here in the United States wherever you're listening from unless you're listening from I think Australia New Zealand I think you have shrews Mm -hmm. we've got shrews in the United States small mammals these are not shrews actually they they look like shrews (laughs) they They do do. yeah Yeah. you can see yeah yeah but they are actually not taxonomically classified with shrews. So that word, did you did you come up with any definitive answer on 
I don't want to say definitive. I, w- okay. I will lean towards Sengi. Okay. Uh, it So basically they're called elephant shrews. They're also called Sengis, which is S-E-G-I. S-E-N-G-I. Ooh, spelling. But it's derived from the Bantu language, but it is also apparently a monetary unit in some countries. So I don't know pronunciation wise from like very unofficial sources like Wikipedia and YouTube you know what exactly they're referring to but I will I will err on the side of Sengi yeah Sengi is what I had in my head and like I said I did watch at least one video that had a person saying Sengi so we'll go with Sengi so to clear up confusion between elephant shrews and true shrews they are also sometimes called Sengi I kind of go back and forth as I was researching I sort of went back and forth in my head so we may use both this evening but just know I thought that that was pretty interesting this is another one of those animals that has jumped around in the the different ways that it's been classified they certainly were classified as shrews previously and I think also maybe even grouped in with rabbits for a little bit Uh, but they are now part of a group sometimes called the super order sometimes called the clade known as afrotheria So they are now, based on genetic research and all of that good stuff that we have access to now, we know that they are most closely related to elephants and manatees and aardvarks. Happy National Aardvark Week, everybody. (laughs) Hyraxes, those animals are all found in this group called Afrotheria. It is hilarious to me that these animals were named for their superficial resemblance with the nose to an elephant's trunk and are actually in that group along with elephants I enjoyed that very much yes it's a good well you were just talking about sort of the the taxonomic naming as well and like elephant shrews probably comes from fairly like European imposition of like well these are the animals we're familiar with mm-hmm. so let's name it an elephant true because those are our animals that we know and maybe locally it was called sengi and really that's much more accurate to say that they're their own thing yeah yeah maybe i'm actually not sure if how the sengi one came about because i do know some local people will have a different name for them as well in certain countries too so but yeah i'm sure that you're right about that largely we already talked a little bit about species either 19 or 20 these kind of two groups of the the larger species as well as the smaller soft furred elephant shrews uh there's been a little bit of shuffling around with that too they were primarily two groups so two genus names for these and then recently I want to say as recently as 2020 is when they kind of did some reshuffling and added a third genus to the group based on more of that genetic research and they can range in size anywhere from around four inches getting all the way up to just about 12 inches long and weigh anywhere from one to one and a half ounces all the way up to that one and a half pounds depending on the species we talked about their oh go ahead Casey I was gonna say just a what an interesting little family yeah we talked a little bit about the the legs already they have those longer hind legs this is apparently a good adaptation for what is called cursorial locomotion which basically just means that they go real fast uh they they are fast movers and of course i mean if you really watch 
a mouse run, you know, if you've ever been lucky enough to have a mouse in your house or anything like that, and you've seen them go, these small animals, they move quickly. That's the best way that they can keep themselves safe. But man, I watched a few videos of elephant shrews running, and it is really impressive how fast they go. They have those long tails. Casey, you talked about those, the sort of rat-like tails. And apparently those can also assist in species identification uh, for some species, whether it's just based on color or I, one species that we'll talk about a little bit later on, I, they were mentioning has like a tuft at the end of its oh, tail cute. that helped with identification as well. And then there's the nose. Yeah. So before we talk about the elephant shrew's nose though, Casey, can you give us just a quick glimpse at an actual elephant's nose what does an elephant's trunk do what is remarkable about an elephant's trunk in your mind an elephant's trunk is probably the coolest adaptation of any species on planet earth agree i'm sure you'll have like counter examples please share them with us but <laughs> elephant trunks are up there it's up there yeah it's up there um it, it contains no bones it's all muscles and it's like 40,000 muscles which uh they have like the largest cerebellum compared to the size of their brain because that helps control muscle movement and that is more muscles than you have in your whole body <laughs> yeah just think of the dexterity that that gives them just the range of movement that they have with that thing right they're able to use little finger-like appendages on the end depending on the species to like pick up seeds and little tiny things all the way to wrapping it around a tree and yanking it out of the ground so for elephants this is like their hands this is the way they greet each other it is also their nose and their upper lip combined it is just like multifaceted functioning but it's very nimble in how it works yeah and it is like they use it for communication they use it for the sense of smell they use it to bring water up to their mouth it is amazing and i knew of course it's not that i thought that an elephant shrew's nose would actually be like an elephant's trunk right i knew that but i just thought it's such a distinctive and i don't mean to say unique because like we have said true shoe shrews have a pointy nose we know of other animals like anteaters that have that long but I just it is such a, a identifiable characteristic with them I was expecting more than I got for the elephant truth notes in two ways one there's not a ton of information I basically only found one study that actually talked much about the anatomy of their nose and two within that study there's just not there's not much there. It's a pretty straightforward nose, I think. Uh, so they do have, it is obviously elongated and there are rings of cartilage uh, along the length of the nose, more complete at the end. And then it has separate segments on the top and the sides of those, these sort of cartilaginous rings. So that does allow for movement so they can move their little nose up and down and side to side it's very cute when they do it the end of their nose in the study it actually compared a little bit to like the end of a dog's nose so it's hairless on that tip and they have glands that will secrete only at the tip of their nose 
And there's some thought that maybe that helps to protect them when they're eating things like ants and termites and, and so forth. And that's really about it. I wish that I had copied it down here. The The article just made me laugh. The first sentence of the abstract was basically saying, there's not that much remarkable about their nose. There's not any sort of special chemoreceptor function within that nose. It's just a long nose, and the assumption would be it's closer to the ground. So as these little animals are running around, they can maybe better smell their food with it. And it's not even like an anteater where, you know, they have that as well, but then that's also their mouth. So their mouth is down there, you know, and they have that tongue that sticks out. For elephant shrews, their mouth is is tucked back underneath their nose. It almost looks a little awkward when they eat. I sort of feel like their nose just gets in the way more than anything for them. Yeah, I think also... um you know, anteaters have a similar nose, but aardvarks are in Afrotheria and they mm-hmm. also have a nose that yes. moves and their mouth is a little more set back as well. But they also have much more complex structures within their nose. They have like tubules that help them smell things, protect them from insects. So, um, I mean, like I said, they do have the, like they have the tubular glands. They just only open right. at the tip of the nose. And yeah, there doesn't seem to be any special sort of chemosensory function huh i bet you we learn more i i say put a pin in that yeah Yeah. um afrotheria even like if you go to afrotheria.net which is um the iucn specialist group that's Mm -hmm. related to it they basically said that when it was formed it only included uh five forgotten groups of mammals because these are typically ones that people are like we don't really know what to do with this yeah Um, i think because some of the animals in the group they are a part of other groups already too mm -hmm. but like tenrec or hedgehog would be also like tenrecs are part of afrotheria Mm -hmm. as well and if you've ever seen a hedgehog tenrecs look very similar to hedgehogs that's another way to think of that nose yeah it's like something that moves yeah so anyway, it's very cute. It it works for them. Less out there about it than I thought. I think that uh, its ability to move is the coolest thing about it. So let's talk about what these little guys do. Uh, a little bit about how how they act in the wild. They are diurnal, which is kind of interesting. We think of like mice and things like that that are typically maybe going to be active once it's more active once it's dark outside. These guys are more diurnal. They are omnivores, but a large part of their diet is insects. So they play a role in nature's pest control for us. And again, that is probably the reason for the longer nose or the way that that longer nose benefits them. They are described as monogamous and territorial, and they give birth to precocial young. So that means that they're young or like they're born with their eyes open and things like that, as opposed to if you think of puppies or something like that, that are pretty helpless at at birth. Uh, And they have babies typically multiple times a year. I should mention that this is a little bit generalized. So there are those 19, 20 different species. I did not go through and classify all of the differences between those species. But generally speaking, this is true for Sangis, just in general. 
So they have babies multiple times a year. They are full grown. I put within months, this might be as little as, you know, 40 days with some species. So they grow up pretty quick. Obviously, small animals, they don't have a super long lifespan anyway. So they they grow up pretty quick. And there's not a lot of parental involvement here. Where huh. our, our sangis are not winning parents of the year. Uh, dad basically doesn't have anything to do with them. And mom at least from what I read with some species is largely just going to find a safe place to leave them again, maybe not super surprising. I don't actually know much about rodents, but you know, I mean like rabbits and things like that will moms will leave their babies in their nests during the day. Sure. And that sort of thing. So in my mind, a similar type of thing. One cool thing that I came across, but didn't find a whole lot of detail on it. This is, I think, largely for those smaller species, the soft-furred elephant shrews, is that they build trail systems throughout their territories, and they'll spend their day maintaining those trails. Hmm. I would like to know more about how those trails are actually developed, but I do think it was interesting that they will spend time walking their trails and sweeping debris off with their limbs and that sort of thing. And this is basically escape routes for them. Cool. Yeah. I, I feel like you would expect them actually to want debris to to hide under, but I guess with how fast they are, they're it's just, just like to go. clean yeah. route. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So get that cursorial locomotion going and so they'll use those uh trails for getaways again not true of all species but an interesting thing that that some of these little guys do and they have a few different ways that they'll communicate they do like a lot of species communicate via scent they'll scent mark their territories they do also vocalize not a whole lot out there about that but i think the interesting thing in terms of communication for them is they do something called foot drumming and they'll also do some tail slapping both of these tend to be when they're disturbed threatened stressful situations these are going to be their responses yeah there's some thought that they use this to communicate with each other about Mm -hmm. like the presence of threats so warning potentially so as much as they're territorial they might be social enough to be able to want to warn each other that something's going down um my interaction quote unquote with them is mostly on an education standpoint. When I worked at the Philadelphia zoo, um, they had black and Rufus giant mm-hmm. elephant shrews, yeah. which are like very distinctive looking. You should look them up. You should take a look, see what they look like. Um, Cause they're red and black. And they're one of the ones that I was reading about in terms of tail identification, that their tail is oh, kind yeah. of orange. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, well, they're like, I think the cool thing about them is that that rounded ear, elephant true mm-hmm. that you sent me the article so cute could very easily be a gerbil basically <laughs> when you see the black and rufus elephant shrews, they are definitely one that you're like what is that yeah. <laughs> and they're big so like you actually identify them as something that's like moving with a purpose and things like that so we had them in our uh, rare animal conservation center in the philadelphia zoo was very at least early on one of the more successful breeders of this species but that's something we talked about a lot was like their tail movements and that's you know they'll slap them on the ground and communicate that way but I think kind of like what we're finding out in this episode here is that that was really like our talking point there because there wasn't 
that much known about them from like it like it was hard to get into a head of an elephant troop because we didn't have as much of that in-depth biological knowledge and i'm sure that partially comes from their range being fairly broad but also in areas of africa where maybe we just don't have as much uh, like scientific data like this is a small species in a lot of dense yeah they can areas for some species they can be found in spots that are tough to get to and they there are a number of species that look really similar too so even knowing which species you have where it can be challenging which we are going to talk about in just a moment one more thing i wanted to mention that i thought was interesting about the foot drumming is there's one article that was looking at whether or not the pattern of foot drumming is species specific and in this study they looked at five different uh, species within the elephantulus genus of elephant true and they did find distinct drumming patterns it was not a huge study and i couldn't find much more on that but apparently this behavior is something that has been found as species specific in other rodent species i guess okay i just think that's really interesting that individual species of this animal might have their own sort of language that they communicate with this foot drumming pattern so again I can't I feel like I sort of can't definitively say it just based on one study looking at five species but it I think it's worth noting yeah I'm another question I would have on this that I'm sure they're still researching is whether this is uh sort of a taught or learned behavior Mm -hmm. like are they even though mom's not super super involved are they still hanging out with her enough that they're witnessing her doing yeah. this to understand the context of it? Or are they just like Is hearing just somebody way, yeah. else around and being like, something bad's going to happen and they learn it from context clues or what? So. Yeah, I don't know. And I think this study, I, I want to say it was done in the 90s. And so what they were looking at it was, uh, could it be used in terms of figuring out like evolutionarily related species mm, yeah. and or uh, identify as, as a species identifier too so that was more what the study was looking at but yeah certainly lots of potentially interesting things there so if we take a look at the conservation of this species the good news is that most species lists are listed by IUCN as least concern and by the way IUCN does still just have the 19 species divided between the two different genus groups so that's where they're at right now like I said I think that we're at least moving towards having 20 species but within those 19 species again most listed as least concern but four species are listed as data deficient the gray-faced sangi is listed as vulnerable and the golden rumped sangi is listed as endangered with a declining population trend and another thing to point out is that lots of even the ones that are listed as a species of least concern, their population trends are unknown. And I think, you know, this is largely what because of what we were just talking about, Casey, these guys can be hard to study. Small animals, difficult to find, difficult to identify, not a lot known about them. An interesting story that popped up while I was researching this that I had not been aware of was a species called the Somali Sangi that hadn't been documented by science in over 50 years and was pretty much what we knew about them we only knew from some museum specimens. 
And then in 2019, a team including a scientist named Stephen Heritage from the Duke Lemur Center and a gentleman who unfortunately I've, I've learned has, has passed away since then, Galen Rathbun, who's from the California Academy of Sciences. And that name is on almost everything that I read about Sengis. Uh, Galen Rathbun has has done a lot of work in, in furthering what we know about these guys. They met up with a scientist from the country of Djibouti, Hussein Raela, maybe? Again, yeah. apologies, uh, just reading the names, haven't heard them spoken. They met up, went on a sort of a, a Sengi expedition and were able to identify this species of Sengi in Djibouti. And this was previously thought to only have existed in Somalia, hence the name Somali Sengi. But this was something that one of the articles that I, I was reading in, the scientist who's from Djibouti, he said that he knew there were Sengis there, but he wasn't sure which species. And he hadn't realized even that Somali Sengi hadn't been seen in in that long. So local people were able to identify the Sengis when they saw pictures of them and they paired up with another local scientist they were able to go out and place traps and actually capture 12 sengi and get a positive identification that this was in fact the somali sengi that hadn't been seen in over 50 years so basically to me the, the point first of all that's just a really cool story and i love to hear about things like that but it just goes to show how difficult it can be not only to find animals but just to get communication out there about them too yeah i think a couple points in here as well is um you mentioned that galen Rath rathbun is on a lot of papers about sengi if you specialize in something in zoology like small enough mm -hmm. you will suddenly become like the, <laughs> an expert because there's so many animals out there and there's so many things we still have to learn. And so especially picking something like Sengis that we just don't know as much about, man, that guy was probably making all sorts of discoveries out there. There's still so much to learn. And also meeting with someone who lived in the area and using his expertise and his, mm -hmm. you know, experience exactly that's the only way we're going to know so much about this yeah. stuff is knowing the people who are actually interacting with it and also empowering them on research as well. For sure. And that's one of the things that I really liked uh, about this story as well. And it seems like for Sengis in general, the biggest conservation challenge for them is habitat loss and fragmentation as it is with everything <laughs> everything yep exactly so I, I just pointing that out there again they these animals are considered to be monogamous they're small animals doing things that are going to break up their habitat is going to make it harder for them to find each other harder for them to mate all of those things so we've talked a lot in previous episodes about habitat loss fragmentation especially if it's Sengis are found in a variety of habitats, but especially for those that live in forested habitats, this can be a challenge for them. So part of this is making sure people there have what they need, have the resources that they need so that they don't have to go into the forested habitat where the Sengis live and, and that sort of thing. I don't want to dwell too much on that aspect of this, but just so you know, that's kind of the status of Sengis out there. And that happens to be the biggest issue that they're facing. What I really want for you to take away from this episode is that elephant trues are adorable animals. They are important to their habitat. 
there's not a whole lot known about them, but I don't want us to forget about the small species out there. So hopefully maybe this was a new species for some of you listening. Uh, and even if it was a species that you are aware of, hopefully you learned something new about them tonight. Thanks for sharing all this, Sarah. Like I said, as someone who, you know, worked at an institution that had these, that was successful with these, I definitely still learn things today. And there's always more out there to discover, especially about the little guys. Yeah. So thanks for bringing these guys to the forefront. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with me. So many cool species out there. Stick around, everybody, and we will give you your challenges for the week. Thanks for listening tonight, everybody. I have a couple of challenges for you, and I'm kind of just continuing on with my theme of learning more <laughs> this year. So just a couple of things for you to check out. One thing that I would challenge you to look at this week is an organization called the Rewild Program, and we'll have a, a link to that in the show notes as well. This, I think, was formerly the Global Wildlife Conservation was what the group was called, GWC, or at least when I clicked on a link talking about it, it redirected me to Rewild. And basically what they are looking at doing is finding quote unquote lost species. So species that haven't been seen cool. by documented by science in a while, much like the Somali Sangi. So this was an animal that had been on their list that is now found. So they kind of have a top 25 and I gather that this sort of rotates, but a top 25 target lost species. They partner with a lot of other organizations in terms of working to help sort of rediscover, hopefully, these species. So you can find the Somali Sangi on their list of found animals, and you can look at what their list of top 25 currently lost species are and read a little bit more about their work. So check out the Rewild program. And then... The second one, like Casey said, we don't want to forget about the little guys. So I think that elephant shrews are pretty cool. I don't even know if I mentioned this. They are found only in Africa. So that's the only place in the world that you'll find them. But wherever you live, you've definitely got some other small mammals around you. So I would challenge you to take a look. Find out what small animals you have living in your area. Perhaps where you live, there are some small mammals that are vulnerable or threatened or endangered, whether that's locally or federally. So check it out and see if you learned about a new species. And share them with us. Yeah. Sarah, where can they share them with us? Everywhere. Uh, we are on Facebook, A Little Greener Podcast. We're on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We're on Twitter at A Greener Podcast. And you can send us an email at A Little Greener Podcast at gmail.com. We do also have a YouTube channel. You can... I mean, you can leave a comment for us there if you want to, but you can listen to the podcasts and have subtitles there if that is helpful for you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for sharing with us, Sarah. We'll be back next week with another episode. So have a great week, everyone. Bye. Bye.